You can move to Second Peter in your Bibles. If you have them, that would be fantastic. Um, our, in first service, as soon as I went up here, of course, this is what happens. Um, the, the whole slides went out. So our first service folks didn't get any kind of slides whatsoever. So I have slides here for you guys. Um, if I forget to use them, so that's such is life. Um, I'll try my best to get it done for you. Uh, but I find that today's message is such that if you can follow along in the word, you're going to do so, so much better. Um, there, we're going through so much text that um, I really feel like if I was to put it all up on the screen for you, sometimes it can get a little bit, um, a little bit messy there. So I'm going to just f- put a framework of where we're headed so that I don't lose you because we're going over technically 21 verses today in Second Peter, which if you can just write Dan Deckard a note and just let him know, hey, um, just let Adam preach a couple in a row. That way he doesn't have to go like 45 minutes. I'm not going to go 45 minutes. You, I might, who knows? But there's lots of different things that I want to get through here. And I think I don't want to rob what Peter is saying here. And I want to make sure that I give him his due because I think it's very important that we do that. And so I'm going to take sort of a larger view of things. Uh, I'm not going to go deep, deep, deep drilling down into every text. Uh, but what I plan to do is start in verse 12. And I want to show you the intensity with which uh, Peter is writing. I'm going to show you the intent behind his writing, and then we're going to back up from verses 1 to 11 to kind of understand where we are in Peter so far so that we can understand the intensity of his message. He he gives us this this intensity, this message, uh, and then I don't want to miss the argument and make a point with forgetting what Peter actually told us. So we're going to have to go backwards a little bit, and then we'll catch up, and then we'll make some applications. So if you can wrap your minds around that, that would be fantastic. Uh, be gracious with me. Uh, in first service, I forgot that the book of Ezekiel existed. I needed some help with that. Uh, I said, what's that book with the, uh, with the dry bones? I had forgotten it. And so you never know when I'm going to call on you to fill in a text that I have forgotten up here. So do not, uh, you better pay attention because you never know. I might call on you and say, you in the plaid shirt. What was that book with the dry bones? You never know. Okay, how many of you in here are familiar with the term bucket list? Okay, it comes from the term um, kick the bucket, which in first service I talked about kick the bucket a little bit. Uh, it's, and then I asked, does somebody know how it started? And they said, sure, see me after. And then I realized it was like a really horrible start, how that came about. And so I decided to delete it for this one. Uh, but you guys all know uh, the term bucket list. There's been movies about it. There's been a song. You know, it's not, it's not bad. It's a pretty good song. You know. Do you know it? You want me to sing it? No, I'm not going to do it. I went skydiving, rocky mountain climbing. I last 2.7 seconds with a boon named Fu Manchu. And I loved, you know, it's right. Anyways, if Brad Williams, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. If Brad Williams was here right now and I saw his belt buckle, I'd be super excited about that. He's not here today. I hope he gets to listen. Um, anyways, man, that is not in my notes. Anyways, we're getting back to it. So you're, we're, all, we're all understanding this idea of bucket list. It, it permeates our culture. Uh, and this week, because I was paying attention, I heard it in a lot of different conversations. One of the ways that I heard it was in relation to one of my friends uh, saying he was going to go to a Celine Dion concert. And that was going to finally be um, scratched off of his bucket list. Uh, and that friend of mine happens to be Chris Gray. And uh, so now you know, if you know him, that in April, his bucket list item of 
seeing Celine Dion will come true. Uh, that's not on my bucket list at all, but that's okay. Some of us have bucket list items of like, I want to go to Yontville, and I want to just hand over my wallet to that French chef who makes things, and apparently it's pretty good. If you know what I'm talking about, you know. We have, all, we have these ideas. Sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's go to Europe or whatever it is. But there, that's one kind of bucket list. And we talk about that in general. And we all, I mean, it's, it's permeated our culture. We t- I'm sure you might have one. You might have, and there's nothing wrong with a bucket list, and I'm not going to slam them today. But there's another kind of bucket list, and this is the one that kind of captures our attention a little bit more. And this is, let's say, the father who's got terminal cancer, and he's not going to be able to make it to the wedding of his daughter's. And so they have a photo shoot and they have a daddy-daughter dance and they make sure that they make those memories. If you guys been familiar with those kind of stories, you've seen them. Or the mom, same situation, she's got young kids and she's not going to be able to see every single one of their birthdays. And so what she does is she writes and she writes and she writes these letters so that every year until they turn 18, they have a birthday present, words or wisdom from their mom. And these are a different kind of bucket list, and they, and they have a different kind of purpose. And these are the ones that capture our attention. And if you have that second kind of bucket list in mind, I think you have the right uh, intensity or the right understanding of how to, uh, how to get Second Peter. Okay? So I tell you that whole way of introduction so that you can kind of keep at the forefront of your mind that Peter is writing in very much that same way. Not the first kind of go to Europe or watch Celine Dion, but the second kind that says, I'm not going to be around very long, and I I really need to tell you something. And and here's why I think that. It says in verse 12 of 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And here's the key. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So he says in verse 14, my body, I'm going to be away from my body soon. So he's, he's hinting at the fact that he's going to die. Peter doesn't have long for the world. He says here that Jesus revealed it to him. Now, we don't know if this is the kind of death that Jesus foretold in the book of John about him, that he would be following, to, following Jesus in very much the same way. And church tradition holds that he was crucified upside down. We don't know if it was in general, or we don't know if there was a, a, a new now second or more specific um, understanding of when he was going to die. We do know that this letter was written most likely towards the end of his life, written for people that are in Asia Minor. So we don't know exactly the terms or how he came to this knowledge, but he says, the putting off of my body is going to be soon. And the putting off of his body prompts him to do something. And it's in verse 15 where he says, And I will make every effort so that after my departure, so that after I die, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So this is the the tone. This is how I want you to understand. This is how, as I make all of my arguments today, I'm not making arguments from a man who's just saying, I decided to write some things down to some people who, who may or may not use them. He's writing to a specific people with a real intensity. He's saying, I don't have long for this world, and I'm not going to casually write to you. He's gonna, what does he say in 12? I intend to always remind. And then in 15, he says, therefore, I will make every effort 
So he's got, he has a real desire and a passion to be writing these people. So I want you to understand that. That's foundational to understanding this. Second, it's who he's writing to. Now, you could think Peter was the kind of person in Acts chapter 2, we see that he does, he probably delivers one of the very first sermons post-resurrection. And it's, it's phenomenal, and the Spirit of God falls, and he preaches the message. He then, uh, further on the book of Acts, preaches to the Gentiles, and once again, the Spirit of God falls. So he, he, has a, he has a heart and a passion to preach the gospel, specifically those who are lost. But what's interesting about Second Peter is who he's writing to. In our world, if I only had a limited amount of time left, who would I write? In our church, if we would say, you know, Parkway Community Church is going to blow up in three years. Or, well, I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible idea to say blow up. Whatever. It's just going to disintegrate. What should we do? We might say, let's get the gospel out to as many lost people as possible. Let's tell as many people about the gospel so that they can be saved. Right, and so you might think that must be what Peter's he's, he's writing, and in, 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 towards the end of his life, he wants to make every effort to do it. So, who is he actually writing to? Our world, we might say, let's let's write to the people who don't know. But what does it say in verse one of Second Peter chapter one? It says Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith. So he's writing to people who already have faith. Not people who have not yet to hear the gospel, but people who already have faith. And then in, in, in verse 12, it'll go a little bit further. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. This is super interesting to me. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So he's saying, you have faith. You are established in truth. And this word established, a kind of cool connection here, this word established is the same exact word that Jesus uh, uses when he uh, tells Peter that he is soon going to deny Christ. This is in the book of John. He says, you're going to deny me, and once you return, strengthen your brothers. That strengthen word is exactly the same word here as established. It's kind of cool to see the connection that what Christ told Peter to be about, here he is at the end of his life still being about that thing. He's strengthening, he's establishing. So maybe that's one reason that he has a, has a, uh, a calling to it. I, I'm not exactly sure. But we know that he's writing to established people and he's writing to people who already have faith. Now in our world, that doesn't necessarily jive with us. We would say, man, why wouldn't you be writing to people who don't know? Like, isn't it all about salvations? Isn't it all about, like, getting people saved and in the kingdom? Now, I would be the worst pastor in America if I told you today that I'm not excited about people who don't know the Lord, if I'm not excited about preaching the gospel, if I'm not excited about you telling your neighbors about the glories of Christ. I would be the worst pastor if I said, God's not about salvations, because that's not true. But we do have to give Peter his due. What he's saying is something very important to those of us who have faith, which is why I think it's a good letter for us at Parkway to go over. How many of us here have faith? You don't have to raise your hand. Most of you do. Most of you are coming here because you're already established in truth. And so Peter, with the intense voice with which he's going to make his argument, today is speaking to you. We, knew, we know that he was speaking to a select audience. Whoa. But this is something we can take for ourselves as well. So what is he actually arguing? This is where I have to pause and go backwards now a little bit, and I'm going to make an argument of where we are in Peter so far as a book. So far in 2 Peter as a book, 
he makes one sort of central argument, and that argument is that you need to confirm your calling and confirm your election by continuing on in the obedience of faith. So in verse 3, we see his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, now listen to this part, who called us to his own glory and excellence. Pause there and go down to verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So in verse 3, we have you were called according to glory and excellence. And in verse 10, we have confirm that calling. Right? And in the middle, it says this. This starts in verse 5. For in this very, so for this very reason, make every effort. Sound familiar? He just said he's making every effort. Now he's telling us. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So what he's saying is, you were called. And in verse 10 he says, make sure that you confirm that calling. How do you confirm the calling? You confirm the calling by making every effort to obey obey faithfully. You add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and so on. And you know that list. You've probably read this verse many, many times before. You've probably heard sermons on it. So this is, this is what he's saying. In 12, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. The these qualities that he is reminding you of, that he's writing towards the end of his life to believers, is to remind you to live a certain way. Okay? So we might say, uh, okay, so what does, he, does he really mean make every effort? We're really good at this, by the way. We're really good at taking what Scripture says when it says something like make every effort, and then we go home and we're like, but that's just not realistic. He couldn't have meant that. I'm pretty sure he means make every effort, which means for us today, brothers and sisters, as we're thinking about making every effort to add to our faith, if we are currently not in the make every effort category, verse 9 tells us what we are, ineffective and blind. Now, you could come to church and say, the pastor called me ineffective and blind today. No, I did not. Peter did. And you could take it up with him. (laughs) He said that. right? But we don't want to be that kind of people. We don't want to be the kind of people that are ineffective and blind. We want to be the kind of people that, it says in verse 10, therefore be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And now this is 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, You have been called according to his glory and excellence. Confirm that calling. And when that calling is confirmed, what you will know is that you will have confidence in where you are headed. You have confidence that you're going to find entry into the kingdom of God. Okay, that's that's the argument so far. Now, I would need to pause. Every time we talk about working at a salvation or adding things to faith, People automatically have red flags. We're so good at preaching gospel. We're so good at preaching grace that anytime we preach effort, our our hearts are like, what's this guy saying? Doesn't he know it's about grace? Yes, I know it's about grace, and so does Peter. 
Look what he says here in verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Obtained a faith equal standing by our own righteousness? By our own efforts? No, by the righteousness of our God. And then in verse 3 it says, Whose power do we operate in to live this godly life? In verse 3 it says, His divine power has been granted. So, we are rooted and grounded in the fact that we in and of ourselves did not save ourselves. It was a free gift of God. That free gift empowers us to live according to his spirit, to live in a right way. Now, our church, not just, I'm talking about the American church, we struggle with the living out the faith part. We say stuff like, I got saved in eighth grade because I said a prayer at camp. And it doesn't matter how I live and it doesn't matter what I do because I know that that was real. What Peter is saying is, okay, maybe that was a real moment. Maybe that was a real confession. But wouldn't you rather be the kind of person that has a calling that is confirmed? That you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a confidence? And here's the reason why this reminder is so weighty. Here's the reason why he is so eager. And it's going to go on in verse 15. Or sorry, verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the pivotal part of his argument. Here's the center point of why he is so eager. Here's the center point of why he argues you should be holy or why you should live a certain way. He says, we came to you and we told you a message. And that message was that Jesus is coming in power. Or he's, he has power and he's coming. Now, when we read the word coming here in 16, most of the time, I think we read that as past tense. Or we assume that that means past tense. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this word originally is parousia. And 18 times in the New Testament, that word is used as the second coming of Jesus. And in fact... Two other times this word is used in this very epistle from Peter, and it most absolutely is in reference to his second coming. Okay, so, so what Peter is saying is the reason that I'm telling you you should add these things, the reason that you should know where you're headed, the reason that you should have a confirmed calling is because we don't just exist here forever. Things just don't go, go on and go on and go on and there isn't a reward. One day there is a coming king who will peel back the heavens and he will come into a point of time and he will be glorious and it will be the second coming of Jesus. And at that time, those who are found to be faithful will be with him and those who are not faithful will not be with him. See, so what he's saying is, if we are going to take this holy life serious, we have to also take serious that Jesus is triumphantly returning as a king. This is why he's, he's making the, the appeal to you. You have a king coming. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to a Messiah who is coming back and he'll be glorious. Okay, that's one. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what we're going to be talking about in just a few moments before I make one more observation is the transfiguration of Jesus. That's what this passage is about. This is what he's arguing. So he's arguing we have a glorious return of Jesus 
And I know that his return is going to be glorious because I saw with my own eyes Jesus' face change from flesh to light. I was an eyewitness to his glory. And we see that in 17 and 18. But I want you to pause for just a second because here's what's really interesting in 16. It says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is not something I made up. It's not something that isn't known. This is a fact. And brothers and sisters, if you have faith in your life, if you have confessed Jesus, you did not confess a concept. You did not confess sort of something that saves you peripheral. You saved a a real person in history, came and did real things in time, and they were true. Which means the things that you read about in Scripture are true. Jesus said over and over in his, in, when he preached, it is written, or so it says. We hinge, or our faith is hinged upon truth, not feeling, not, not sort of being carried along and saying, oh, that seems true to me, or that doesn't seem true to me. What Peter is saying is, that's how you can get involved in myth. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 2, he's going to be very clear that if you do not pay attention to the word of God, you can get carried away by false teachers. And what they want to tell you is that Jesus isn't coming back, that there isn't going to be eternal life. They're going to pervert the gospel because they want you to just relax. It can't be true that he wants you to make every effort. Why would they do that, right? So that's that whole point. And this is why knowledge for Peter is super important. Just real quick, in, in uh, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. In three, it says, um, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge. In verse five, it says, make every effort to add knowledge. Right? So this this idea for Peter, Peter doesn't think that this idea of, of Christ returning is not something to be treasured. He believes that it is something to be known. It is true. It is a verifiable fact and that this knowledge leads you to living life a certain way. Okay, so he gives us two pieces of evidence. He's already said this is true. His whole argument is you have a glorious king returning. You need to live a certain way. Here's how I'll tell you it's true. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory... This is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9 record for us uh, in the synoptic gospels the transfiguration of Jesus. What's really amazing about all three of those accounts is that what happened right before the transfiguration was Jesus predicting his death in all three gospels. Jesus predicts the son of man has to suffer many things and he will die and he will be raised. He says that in in Matthew chapter 16. He says it in Mark 9 and also in Luke 9. He says those things. And then right after that, he leads Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. And while there, there's, um, there's Elijah, there's Moses, there's a cloud, and they're talking, but something else starts to happen. There's light that begins to emanate from Jesus. And he begins to transfigure from the form that he was in as a human. And his glory starts to radiate and emanate. And and the account of Matthew says his clothes are as white as 
are whiter than anyone could bleach them. This is, this is a purity and this is a holiness. This is the glory of God in just a moment, the glory of Christ being peeled back so that three disciples could see it. Only three people were eyewitnesses of his glory. And so when, when Peter tells you earlier that, listen, he's going to come back, it's not a myth that the glorified God, the glorified Christ is going to come back. It's not a myth. You know why I know it's not a myth? I saw his flesh give way to glory. I saw just a, just a piece of what he's going to be like when he returns. And you know what Peter's response was? He had two responses. Two of the Gospels tell us that he fell flat on his face and was terrified. But all three Gospels tell us that he, t- he looks at Jesus and he says, it's good that we're here. Can we build tents and just stay here forever? And church, this is the intensity of the glory of Christ. We are coming to a time when we will see him. The heavens will be rolled back and it will be both glorious and good and terrifying. Any account of someone seeing the holiness and purity of God in scripture results in one thing, someone fat, flat on their face. Every single time when we encounter the holiness of God, that's our response. But not to terrify us, not to scare us, but because we need to know, Peter then says, it's good that we're here. That's what we're living for. We're living for when we see the day dawn, when Christ comes and he makes all things new. That's what we're looking for. That is the center point of Peter's argument. And he's saying, don't be the kind of person that is blind to the reality of what is coming. Don't be the kind of person that says, oh, he can't be coming back. Look how long it's been. Or I don't need to live holy because I made a confession when I was in third grade. That should be enough. What Peter is saying is the only thing that's enough is to continue to add to your faith these qualities, to practice them so that you are confident. To save yourself? No. But you have a confidence that when you see him, you'll know him. You don't want to be the kind of person, as the heavens are being rolled back, to be like, I don't recognize that person. You want to be the kind of person that says, that's my long-awaited king. He comes to set everything new, and now my joy begins. That's who we want to be. We don't want to be the kind of people that are blind to his coming. And so what he's saying is, church, this is not peripheral doctrine. This is not something that you shouldn't talk about. I'm reminding you that the king is coming, and it is primary, and it should be one of the primary motivations of your life as a believer. So if we have grown weary, church, of telling each other about this, if we have gone light on the fact that a physical, magnificent, glorious return of Jesus is happening, we have done a disservice to ourselves and to each other. We have to remind each other what's coming. Now here's what's even, I mean, this is, I love this part. Verse 19, I told you there were two pieces of evidence. He says, my eyewitness accounts is one of them. That's one of the things that you can bank on to tell, that I'm telling you what's true. The second thing it says in 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Okay. What he's saying is, I saw the glory of Christ on a mountain. I had an eyewitness account of this true event that, that he's going to come back. And now he says... And we have the prophetic word now more fully confirmed. What he's saying is, my first-hand account, my eyewitness account, did not teach me something new, did not teach me something that couldn't be known. It only confirmed what was already clearly stated in the prophetic word. 
His eyewitness account of seeing a glorified Christ only furthered his confirmation that he knew about it already through the word. Church, how much confidence does Peter have in his Bible? How much confidence did the apostles have in their Bible? How much confidence did they have to say, like, that glorified Christ that I saw, I knew it was going to happen anyways. It just more fully confirmed what I already knew. This is, this is what Scripture means. This is the idea. And in verse 20 and 21, it's going to argue, and I, I might get there, I might not get there, we'll see. But in verse 20 and 21, Peter's going to argue that these words of Scripture were not my own interpretation or were not the interpretation of the person who wrote them, but rather they were the very words of God that the Holy Spirit etched on paper through the inspiration of people. He carried them along. And so the very words of God were inscripturated. He has confidence in the written word of God. The reason why I think it's the written word of God is because three times he talks about it. He says here in 19, we have the prophetic word, but then in 20 it says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture. So he says prophecy of scripture. Then 21, he says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So that prophecy of scripture, that word there is graphe, means writing. And he's going to say in 19, you should pay attention to it. Really hard to pay attention to a prophetic word that was given audibly thousands of years before Peter was around. So what he means to say is pay attention to the words that you have. Pay attention to the Bible. Pay attention to the scriptures. Now, before you say, Adam, well, he must be only talking about the Old Testament. I could go lots of different places and show you why I think he knew, and he also knew the writings of Paul were scripture. And we could talk about how we have our Bible as well, and that could go on for an hour, and we could teach a special class on it. Just know that for our purposes, when it says prophetic word here, although Peter in that moment is referencing the word that they have, we can input our scriptures. That's how much confidence we can have in the word of God. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I have so much confidence in what I saw that it wasn't something new. It wasn't something strange. It wasn't some concept that I didn't know. I knew it because I knew my Bible. And now he's going to say in 19, you will do well to pay attention to this word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, church, the only way a lamp works is to use it. The only way a lamp can work is to use it. A lamp does you no good behind you, illuminating where you've already gone. A lamp only works as you use it. What is his argument? That the times are dark. That there's darkness all around and you're using this lamp. And that lamp is the prophetic word of God. The word of God is the lamp. You need to pay attention to it. The only way that you have a lamp for yourself, the only way that you can see in the darkness now in this world is through paying attention to the prophetic word. You have to pay attention to the scriptures. Okay? You can't say, I go to church once every six years, and I made a confession when I was 12, and that means I'm paying attention to the word. No, you are not. I'm just going to be the one to tell you you are not paying attention to the word in that moment. Stay right there. Paying attention to the word means lighting it, means allowing it to illuminate your way. Now, I don't know for a fact how many times Peter would say you should be reading your scriptures or how many times you should be meditating on it or how much you should memorize it, but I'm assuming when he says the word make every effort and you would be well to pay attention, I'm assuming it's probably going to be the heartbeat of your life. 
So who in here says the very foundation for my living, the very thing that I need the most is the word of God? And then we can say confidently with Jesus, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word. So say in Isaiah, the grass withers, but the word of God shall stand. What's it say? Forever. There's confidence. He has confidence in this word. We have to use it correctly. We, act, we actually have to use it as a lamp. And here's the interesting thing. When we're using it correctly, it leads us to a certain fixed meaning. Because it says here in the second half of 19, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The day dawning and the morning star rising in your heart is a reference to Jesus coming again. In Revelations 20, Revelation 22, 16, Jesus, these are his last words as recorded in Revelation, says, I am the bright and morning star. And he's coming again. And so we're only paying attention to the word if we read the word correctly and we understand the fixed meaning that Jesus is going to come. Now, in chapter 2, he lists out these false teachers that are about to come. False teachers are going to come into the church, and they're going to change the meaning of things. They're going to want to change the fixed meaning of Scripture. They're going to want to make it mean something else so that they can have a license to live however they wanted to live. Peter's argument is if you know Jesus is returning, you know that he's going to return glorious, it will both be terrifying and good, it will change the way that you live. But there are going to be people who want you to relax, who will say it's not sustainable to live that way. It's not reasonable to live that way. It's too big of a burden to live that way. And they're going to want to look at the words of Scripture and change them. In fact, I'm sure there are people in our world and currently in our churches that are preaching messages that are very much like that. I know that because I've heard some of them recently. So we know that that's happening. But we are to be the kind of people that pay attention. We pay attention by finding the fixed meaning. Finding the meaning. What's it say in 20? Knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is not, it's not up for debate. This is the Word of God, and it has a fixed meaning, and it means something. So we don't get to come to a text and say, that's challenging, I don't believe it. When we come to a text that's challenging, we say, help me to believe it. This is exploding every category I know for how to love other people. This is exploding every category for how, 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 how to live radically. This is, is going to cause me to change in ways I don't want to change. We have a tendency, folks, to pick and choose the scriptures we want to. We love the Jeremiah 29 11s. For I know the plans. I know the plans that you have for me, Lord. Plans to prosper. Well, I love that verse. I'm going to paint that on my doorway into my house. If you have that in your house, No judgment. Um, some of you might. It's a great verse. It's a great verse, but sometimes we come to the Word and we find all of those things and we cherry pick the Psalms that are about, mm, God, oh God, God's delighting me, that's fantastic. We pick these ones that are just all about encouragement, and that is fantastic. The Word of God should be encouraging, but also the word, we're going to come to places where it says, be holy as I am holy. You don't get to be like, that one's not very, that one's not very encouraging. That one uh, means I need to make some changes. I'm not going to put that one on my doorway. No way, no way. Can't do that. We have this tendency to treat Scripture and make it soft and palatable. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, and it is sharper than any double 
edged sword. We come to the word sometimes, and we're like, oh, I just need a word of encouragement today to get me through my day. I just got to feel great about who I am. Sometimes reading the word and paying attention to it is the intention to feel good and then feel terrible. Because you need to change. That is gracious God speaking to you in living and active ways. And it is going to separate you. And it does hurt. But guess who gets the glory then? The one who's coming anyways in his glorious form. You might as well just be good at doing it now. Right? So what's our takeaway? A few of them. One of the first ones is let's take it serious for the glory of God. Let's take living the right way. Not as a way to earn God's favor, but because we have been so graciously shown favor. Let us live in a way that brings God the most glory. Which means for some of us in here today, we need to let him have control of parts of our life that we have not yet let him have. Whether that is holding on to something that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is not healthy for you. That one thing that you keep on promising that you're going to lick over and over and over and over again. Maybe it's time to call a foul on yourself and say, for the glory of God, I'm willing to be embarrassed. For the glory of God, I'm willing to tell my brother and sister about it. For the glory of God, I'm willing to say, I'm going to make every effort to stop doing that. Maybe for some of us, we understand, man, I've read the word of God, but I've never treated it that way. I've never depended on it. I've never read it as if it was the very Words of life. Well, maybe you need to start a Bible reading plan. Some of you are doing awesome stuff and you love the word of God. You need to teach someone else to love the word of God. Now, this is what's interesting. What does, what does Peter say, his original thing says? He's like, I want to stir you up. That's his goal. As long as I have, I want you to be stirred up. So church, I want to stir you up. I don't want you to leave here and think, that didn't apply to me because I'm already doing pretty well. For some reason, Peter wrote to people who had faith that were already established in the truth, and he felt like they needed to make every effort, and he needed to make every effort to stir them up. So I don't know how to apply that to you today, but the Spirit of God is way better at it than I am. And if you will just spend a moment, or just a few moments, or just a day, praying, Lord, how should I be stirred up as a result of this message, as a result of the fact that you are coming. Teach me how to live. So I want to glorify you. That's takeaway number one. And takeaway number two, we got to use scriptures the right way. We have to work hard to find their meaning. We can't come to a passage and think it just means that and just walk away from it. We got to know that it means it. These words are not man's words. Verse 21 says that these words are from the spirit of God. And one thing I know about a glorious Christ. I mean, when that, when we see that, we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt he was not to be trifled with. He was not to be played around with. He was not somebody that we can change the meaning of the words from. As it say in Revelation, don't change any word from this book of prophecy. Let him who changes it be eternally condemned. Like, don't mess with what it means here because these are my words So I hope that those, I mean, there are probably many ways and many different things that we could talk about. And I will just end by saying I apologize for going over 21 verses. You guys did a great job sticking with me. Thank you. If you've never had, um, if you've never started reading the word on your own by yourself, please come talk to me. I've got awesome resources for you. And I would even love to take you out and just read the word with you. 
Or there are people in this, in this congregation that so deeply love Jesus and his word, they would love to disciple you. So don't leave here thinking like, oh, I'm just not smart enough or I didn't get it. No, 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 don't do that. Don't hear that in my words. Take it seriously. Make some changes. Glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have this opportunity and we have this time. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is going to come gloriously to ransom his people. We long for that day. For those of us in here that aren't longing for that day, that right now are so tied to this world and the pleasures that are contained in it and the value that they get from it, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would show them where they have put that first and put you second. And I ask God that this, 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 this knowledge, this truth, this verifiable fact that you were coming back will be a lamp for us as this church, that we will pay attention to the word as we know that one day we will see the very word of God face to face. We want to be ready for it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.